0: So we're in the middle of a series of conversations looking at the question, is it a sin to be gay? And so far, we've kind of looked at a big overview of the topic. We looked at the two major positions. Then we dug a little deeper into the scriptures. First, we looked at the Old Testament, then at the New Testament. And we looked at the key passages in both the Old and New Testament from both the traditional standpoint and the progressive standpoint. And where we left off last time was with the conclusion that the traditional position is, in fact, an accurate reflection of the teaching of Scripture. Now, what I want to do in this segment is look a little deeper at some of the causes of homosexuality. Now, this is a very controversial issue, and I want to make it very clear from the beginning what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is that all of these causes apply to all people who have had same-sex attractions or same-sex relationships. Some of these things will apply, some will not. And what I'm looking at here is just the big picture, the broad brushstrokes of what we hear time and again of the contributing factors that often go into homosexuality. So when we think about the question, what are the causes of homosexuality, really the easiest answer is this. It's complicated. There are a lot of factors. And so we're gonna walk through each of these critical things right now. And the first one is really growing in popularity, and that is sexual experimentation. And we briefly mentioned this last time. And that is, I see the current rise of LBGT, uh, the the rise of LGBT practices as really being the natural extension of the sexual revolution that started in the 1960s and 70s. And really what we're engaged in now is just kind of the natural outworkings, the next steps of that sexual revolution. And many people have become very curious about same-sex relationships. It has almost become very hip, very much of a fad, to engage in same-sex relationships. Uh, Even down in middle school and high school, it's no longer just, well, I'm a young adult and I'll sexually experiment. Now these things are trickling down into younger and younger ages. And so I think it's probably going to continue to rise in popularity and more and more people are going to start having these kinds of same-sex experiences, if you will, even if they're not necessarily truly same-sex attracted uh, on a deep uh, soul level. But it's just more of a fad and sexual experimentation. Another factor that often happens in homosexuality is that of Um, an increase in the normalization of homosexuality in terms of our mass society. There is a big push of persuasion that is happening right now in our culture and has been happening for the last 25 years. But we might not necessarily have noticed it until more recently in the last five to 10 years. Now, there is an interesting book uh, called After the Ball that if you can get, uh, it's out of print. It's it's from uh, about the late 80s, like 1988 or so, 89. And it's a book that talks about the meetings of 175 key gay activists who came together in 1988 to develop a strategy, a real intentional Cultural strategy for how they were going to mainstream homosexuality into American culture. So, this is a book that is written from a gay perspective, from a gay activist perspective, on their kind of game plan for how they were going to bring. LGBT issues into the mainstream. It's a very fascinating book. And I'm just going to highlight one chapter in the middle of the book that I think is really the crux of what the book is about. And it gives a good revelation into their strategy. And they want to engage in what they're going to call good propaganda. They said the word propaganda has a very negative connotation, and that's very unfortunate. But rather, they want to promote and advocate for what they call good propaganda. They want to go about with a deliberate attempt to persuade the masses via public communications media. They saw media as being a critical component of their strategy to get their message out. And here's how they wanted to do that. They want to spread new ideas and feelings through this propaganda. They want to promote a climate of increased tolerance for homosexuals. And they want to use a strategy that relies more about, upon, this is a very interesting phrase, emotional manipulation than upon logic, since its goal is, in fact, to bring about a change in the public's feelings. This is propaganda through and through. And we often think of propaganda as something like Adolf Hitler in in engaged in during World War II to get Germans to hate Jews. But this is a different kind of use of propaganda that they see as being good. And they want to engage in a cultural campaign or what I call mass persuasion of the culture in order to get people to change their feelings about homosexuals. Now here is more of a breakdown of their strategy. So let's look at this. They look at it in three stages. And their real emphasis is on the importance of encouraging gay people to come out, to come out of the closet and to declare to their friends and family, I am a homosexual, I am gay, I am lesbian, I am bisexual, or I am transgender. And they see this being accomplished through this propaganda campaign in these three stages, which are just classic propaganda. So let's look closer at each of those. The first one is desensitization. Gays as a group will begin to seem more familiar and unexceptional to straights. This is a, is a very critical first step to them, is if if people start coming out and start declaring their homosexuality, the thought is, everyone's going to know a homosexual. And so it's not going to seem weird or abnormal or underground. Rather, it's going to seem like, oh, yeah, my cousin's homosexual. My brother's homosexual. My best friend's homosexual. And so there's a, a mass effort to desensitize the straights, as they call them, the heterosexuals, to the existence of, in the population of homosexual individuals. Then they also talk about jamming. Jamming is the interrupting the smooth workings of bigotry, and they would call bigotry basically anything that impedes or sends a message that homosexuality is in any way wrong, deviant, or sinful. So we would, in advocating for the traditional position, be bigots according to their point of view. Let's continue. They say openly showing their disapproval of homo hatred, extreme bigots will become less confident. So by jamming people, by almost engaging in public shaming and name calling, we see this a lot these days of being called homophobic and being called being called bigots. This is a form of propaganda called jamming where you're you're Trying to change the conversation to really uh, incite people's negative feelings toward straight people. And finally, the third plank in the strategy is conversion. They want to make straights actually like and accept homosexuals as a group, enabling straights to identify with them. This becomes possible when a heterosexual learns that someone he already likes and admires, such as a friend or family member, is homosexual. I thought this was a really good quote right here to illustrate that final uh, step of the propaganda campaign where they're engaging in conversion. They say, after meeting enough likable gays on television, Jane Doe may begin to feel like she knows gays as a group even if none have ever introduced herself themselves to her personally. And even though this book was written, you know, almost 25 years ago. Now we see this happening all the time on mainstream television since the nineties, but, but growing more and more these days, key characters, um, are being incorporated into our favorite shows and in our, to our favorite movie, uh, genres that are gay. And why are they there? It's part of this propaganda campaign. And it's to make us feel like we know gay people. Even if we don't actually know any gay people in real life, we look at them in the movies and on television, uh, even on home improvement shows, we're exposed to these, these people. And we start to think like, yeah, gay people, they're just like everyone else. They're just like me. And so it's to rework our feelings so that we will be more accepting." This cultural persuasion, I think, is an aspect to why homosexuality continues to grow in popularity and will continue to grow. Another factor in why are people gay is this, is environmental factors. It's very controversial to talk about these things with people who are living in the gay lifestyle, because there is a stereotype of overstating these environmental factors. But I think our concerns about overstating the environmental factors ought not prevent us from at least mentioning them, because they are a critical factor. And that is environmental factors would include things like abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, but very often, sexual abuse. Many people who identify in the LGBT lifestyle have also been victims of sexual abuse. Now notice what I said. Did I say all people? No, not all people. There's not a one-to-one causation. There's many people who are sexually abused who don't become gay. But there is a significant number of people in the LGBT community who have experienced sexual abuse. And as they've explored the factors that contributed in that journey of their their self-understanding, that sexual abuse played a significant role. So that is often part of their story. Another environmental factor would be early exposure to porn. Porn is a prolific part of the LGBT lifestyle. And again, it is something that is not often talked about because people who are gay don't want it to seem like they're the only ones looking at porn. And we know that that's not true. Straight people look at porn too. But there is often this porn and especially early exposure to porn and addiction to porn is a prevalent part of that lifestyle. Another environmental factor is a difficult relationship with that individual's parents. Now, again, I'm not talking about all gay people. Some gay people have a very lovely relationship with their parents, but many do not. And many, because of the abuse that they suffered or emotional detachment that they suffered from their parents, it it creates a rough relationship between themselves and their parents. And as they've explored factors that go into their homosexuality, their relationship with their parents is often cited as a significant contributing factor. Another very important factor is that of individual perceptions. When we are children, we often perceive the world in distorted ways because we have a childlike view of the world. And our distorted perceptions can seem very real to us. They can seem very true and authentic to us, but often they're they're distorted. Have you ever kind of told a funny story from your childhood to your parents and your parents tell you like, that's not how it went at all, or I don't remember that. It's because we have childlike perceptions of things. And we perceive the world and experience the world through our very tender childlike soul. And often that can become damaged because we're very vulnerable. And sometimes people have detachments from their parents, even though their parents want to be very present for them. And their parents intensely love them, but the child, something happens in their own internal story and perceptions where they feel detached from their parents. Perceptions about the perceived conflict, especially with their same-sex parent. If something has disrupted their attachment with their same-sex parent, sometimes that can influence and uh, choices that they make later or ways that they perceive themselves. Perceptions about feeling different from their same-sex parent or feeling different from their same-sex peers. There's something in them that from the very early stages of their life, they just, they feel different than everyone else. How come I'm not like other people? I'm not like other girls, or I'm not like other boys. They can also have feelings of conflict about their gender. And this can start very early in their life. And this is why I think often we hear people report, I've always felt this way. Because we don't often have have memories that go back all the way into early toddlerhood or infanthood. uh, And something in us has gotten malformed, and and then that contributes to our gender confusion. So those are all under the category of perceptions. And there could be other kinds of perceptions that happen in the child, but those are just some frequent ones that you might hear uh, come up in conversations with people. Another factor in why some people are homosexual, is what I call meditations or thoughts of their heart. This is when we, we first notice, like, I feel different than other children. I feel different than other girls. But then that thought becomes part of them, and they start meditating on it, and they start really thinking about it, and they start that becomes almost a lens for them and how they interpret their life. And then they start seeing everything that happens to them through that lens. And so after a while, then that leads to choices. And then they start making choices and acting out on those self-perceptions. So perceptions can often lead to meditations and thoughts of the heart, and those in turn lead to choices. And just so that you understand that everything I'm always trying to teach you is from a, from a historical Christian perspective. I thought this was wonderful. This was sent to me by uh, one of my friends who's in Eastern Orthodoxy. And it sort of goes like this. First, we have the assault. We have the sinful thoughts, the urges, the images that attack a person's mind. And then we start interacting with those images. I thought this was a beautiful way of saying it. We open up a dialogue with those sinful urges and thoughts and images. We start entertaining them. We start thinking about them and meditating on them. And then we get into consent. The person then consents to act upon those urges. It's what I called a minute ago choices. We start making choices and decisions maybe about how we dress or how we act or how we act out in our sexuality. And then we feel defeat because we become hostage to our urges and we find them more difficult to resist. And then finally it becomes a passion or an obsession and it gives birth to the urges becoming an entrenched reality within our soul. And we enact them over and over again. Now hopefully you can see from this list that this doesn't just apply to homosexuality. This applies to any habitual sin that we engage in. It could apply to adultery. First we have the assault of the thought, the lustful thought about someone else's husband. And then we start interacting with that thought. We open up a dialogue with that thought. And then we give consent, we start making choices about hanging out with that person more and more and and then maybe engaging in sexual activity. This could also apply to porn addiction and that sin. It could apply to fornicating with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. It could apply to any number of habitual sins. Gluttony, as we talked about the first week. When we engage in habitual sins, this is sort of the pattern that the enemy leads us through. And we become willing participants with the enemy to give birth to a passion or obsession that begins to genuinely warp our soul over time. Another critical component in all of this, and this is what this leads us to, is demonic deception. This is kind of behind a lot of what we just talked about there with that road to habitual sin. And I think that the demonic component is, is part of that. Because sometimes what we think are our own thoughts may not actually, in the beginning, be our own thoughts. But the enemy comes along and starts whispering in our ear and giving us those, those pictures, those images, those desires, those urges. And then we start meditating on them. We start a dialogue with them. And then they give birth to other choices. We see this demonic deception both in the culture. There's a culture-wide demonic deception happening. And I think there's also an individual scheme for each person. And I wanted to take some time right now to think about this by reading Ephesians chapter 2. Because I think that Ephesians chapter 2 is a great summary of this dynamic of what's happening in the demonic realm. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now I want you to notice the echo to what we read last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that there were all of these sins that were listed. And it said, you will not inherit the kingdom of God if you, if you walk in these sins as a, as a habitual lifestyle. And some of you used to do that, but now you don't. You've been washed, you were justified, you were sanctified. Paul says the very similar thing here. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You used to live like this, but you don't anymore. So these sins are not something that are in part of our inherent being. Rather, they are things that we give birth to over time as we live them out in our life choices. And I love what Paul says of this here in, um, in chapter 2. He says, you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. See, there's a grand deception that's happening in our culture right now. And the enemy is working behind the scenes to help the people to follow the ways of this world and to fall into this grand deception. The ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in the world, that's the enemy. And this is a a demonic deception on the large, grand cultural level that we are engaged in, the, the good propaganda as they call it. That is a demonic deception. And it sucks the individual into it, into that sinful vortex, because the deception says everything's normal, everything's okay, this is just a lifestyle choice. You're choosing men or women sort of like you choose red or green socks in the morning. You prefer blue, he prefers red, no problem. But it is a problem. It is a grand deception that the spirit, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the world is enacting and is veiling the eyes of our culture. We have to be diligent in the truth of God's word to see through this deception and to see these broken lives for what they truly are. Paul continues, all of us also lived among them at one time. In other words, all of us have sinned and we've all lived a disobedient lifestyle, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. This is what we were before we knew Christ. We were deceived. We were disobedient. And I love this word. And if you want to circle it in your scriptures or highlight it, so important. In beginning of verse four, it says, but, but, I love that word because that was not the Lord's final answer to us. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and it's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not by works so that no one can boast for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, your sinfulness, whatever that is, whatever you are entangled in, whatever passions and lusts you have, enacted in your life and in your soul whatever you are trapped in that is not god's final answer for you he sent his son jesus christ to die for your sins in your place and he's offering you a free gift right now that if you receive it you can have new life you who were far away from god can now come near to him it is a powerful powerful message but I, what I want us to understand today is that just as Christ has an individual plan for your life, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. God has a plan of good works for your life. And just as that's true, the enemy has a plan to bankrupt to your life, to steal your life, to harm your life. To bring you into agreement with drug addiction, porn addiction, sex addiction. To bankrupt and steal your marriage through adultery. To rob you of your anointing and your calling in the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants The enemy wants to make you believe that your lifestyle has disqualified you from the love of God. And I'm here today. I bless you today to know that you are not disqualified. Jesus has done everything necessary to let you come near to him. But what he wants you to know is that he loves you so much. He's not leaving you in that trap. He wants to set you free today from whatever your hardships are, whatever demonic deception you have come into agreement with, Jesus wants to set you free in his truth. So yes, there is that cultural deception that's happening on the large scale. And there's a deception that's been happening for you as an individual. The enemy has a customized plan to destroy your life. And he may be sent abusive people into your life to hurt you, to harm you. He might have have been telling you lies about God the Father, that God didn't love you, that if God did love you, he would have shown up differently. He would have saved you from abuse. He wants to do everything he can to come between you and God. He might have sold you on addiction that seems to bring temporary relief and comfort for a little while and he wants you to believe that that's all there is, then that's all you get. But it's not true. It's a demonic deception that has been customized by the enemy to destroy your life. And I want you to know that Jesus is not leaving you there. Jesus not only died for your sins, he died to set you free from your sins and you can reverse that road. You can go back up that road from a sinful, habitual habit, obsession, passion, and being in a loving relationship with the Father. We're gonna watch now some video clips, just some very short testimonies from people who have experienced and walked in the homosexual lifestyle. A little about their stories and what i hope you'll see in it is the complexities of what went into their descent into homosexuality but i want you to, to listen for what lies were they believing what dangerous people were in their lives that abused them and harmed them and how did the enemy deceive them into acting out on their sins we're going to watch that right now
1: my father was a very hard-working man And my father seemed to feel from the time I was a boy that I was not what he wanted. Now, I never quite understood why or what I could have done, but from day one, I felt, whether correctly or incorrectly, that I was unacceptable to him. I think that I sensed more keenly a clear rejection from my father. I think I sensed from my mother exhaustion. I think she loved me. In fact, in retrospect, I'm convinced both my parents loved me very much. But at the time, there were things I needed from both of them that they didn't seem able or willing to supply.
2: I viewed my dad, you know, he emotionally uh, was abusive to my mom as well as verbally. I did see my dad hit my mom. It was only like twice. I know that's twice too many, but Um, As far as, you know, physical abuse, there wasn't really anything. My dad uh, was a very jealous man, very insecure. I realize now he's very narcissistic. So it was pretty much all about him. But in the verbal abuse and in the emotional abuse, uh, I watched my mom crumble underneath that. And the way my dad did these things, my little mind came to the conclusions that women are hated, women are vulnerable, and women are weak. And that's why he was picking on my mom, basically. And then when I watched my mom respond out of these things, I saw that she, you know, she was weak because she didn't know how to stand up for herself. She didn't know how to draw those boundaries because she was afraid of him. You know, he he could be angry in a moment. And, um, And I watched her be vulnerable in that as he continued to charge at her with words and those types of abuses. I remember uh, kissing this young lady, and it was like a, when I had kissed her, it was just like a poison, if you will. I would say it was a demonic spirit that was just released into my body, and it planted that seed, and then it started, you know, it started this you know wanting more and more and then I started you know thinking about women more and more but I think if I had never acted on that or told somebody I felt that way then I wouldn't have been a a victim if you will to that person to take advantage of me to allow that to happen to me
3: when it all started for me I was about four years old and my grandmother was um, for whatever reason enjoyed cross-dressing me and by the time I was five Uh, she had made me a purple chiffon full-length dress. And so when Grandpa was gone and my parents dropped me off at her house to be babysat, usually a couple of times a month, that was the routine. Grandma would dress me up as a little girl and she just would get excited about me being a little girl. She liked me better as a little girl. She really reinforced that female appearance of mine and with that seed planted in me. And and I must say, I didn't know that something was actually wrong because I had no basis to look at the other side of it. I just knew that, you know, when I was home, that didn't happen, my parents weren't like that, but my grandma told me to keep it a secret. That purple dress sort of took on a life of its own as an image within my thinking. So at night, you know, when I was laying in bed, all these things went through my head, what grandma had been doing, grandma's voice, I could hear her talking to me about it, the explosion with my mom and dad and the difficulty it caused between them and the difficulty it was causing between my mom and her mom and my dad and, and grandma. So it was a, a, a very wild dynamic that a, a kid at this time, I was, might have been seven years old, didn't quite understand.
1: I was routinely molested sexually from the time I was eight until I was 10 by uh, a handful of men in my city who were pretty adept at gaining the trust of young boys and uh, seducing them and then engaging them sexually uh, in exchange for money, gifts, affection. And there's no question uh, that that played into my confusion later on in my life. And then my own decisions, I'd have to factor in there. I mean, I decided for years to experiment sexually with anyone who would allow me, girls in junior high school and high school, adult men when I was in high school. Uh, I began using pornography while I was still in elementary school. So I think the factors that uh, contributed to it would include my own emotional brokenness long before I was introduced to sex, the sexual violations, and then my own responses uh, to those violations. So I was very hungry for a man, a father figure, to uh, bless me, um, affirm me, um, identify with me, welcome me into his manhood and his masculinity. And um, not getting that where I wanted it, I was willing to take it wherever I could get it. Well, that's where I got it, or at least what I thought was it.
2: One of the things that the Lord revealed was that Because my mom wasn't nurturing, there's this nurture thing that I was missing. And I believe that's why I thought wanting to be with women was, was normal. Because a lot of the women that I would choose would be very nurturing, very gentle, very soft. Ones that needed to be protected. Because one of the vows that I made is that I'm gonna be the man my dad is not. I'm not gonna be an abuser. I'm not gonna be those things that he is.
1: I think if you ask anyone who has been either sexually molested or physically abused, they'll tell you that there are lies you begin to believe when that happens. You tend to believe that that is love, that what people want from you is either physical or sexual, that what matters the most in life is power, how to get it, how to keep it, that you don't have much to offer apart from that. And, and so when I would pray uh, after having been molested, I thought that God probably was watching. I just didn't think he cared. And I was hoping if I could get his attention, maybe he would notice me and do something to either put me in a more loving environment or give me the strength to say no to this or somehow, race me through my childhood so I could skip the years until I was old enough to be on my own. In other words, I thought that God knew, I just didn't think it mattered to him. Most of the people in my life either bullied me or abused me or humiliated me. And when that's what you get from most of the people in your life, you learn what I call a conviction of non-entitlement. You believe that you're not entitled to be hurt, you're not entitled to be angry. And so I assumed that God was just one more of the many people who didn't much care what happened to Joe Dallas. And I assumed that that meant Joe Dallas wasn't of much value. If you really don't think you're of much value, you don't think you have a case against anybody.
0: So hopefully you can see in those clips a lot of the concepts that we've been talking about, all kind of weaving together in those brothers and sisters' stories, very powerful Um, I really want to encourage you to check out, you know, the testimonies of ex-gays on YouTube. There's many, many powerful ones. I was just a very small selection of those. But I want to highlight a few critical concepts that we saw in those testimonies. And one is abuse and sexual abuse in particular figured into several people's testimonies. And you're going to hear that thread a lot. Uh, from people who have really begun to explore that path and been on a journey of what went into my um, path and my, my steps toward homosexuality. The one gal who was a former transgender woman, she talked about her narcissistic father and her weak mother. And I want you to notice there that that is a powerful perception that she had about her parents as a child, and she wouldn't, obviously as a child, use the term narcissism, and she reflected on that as an adult, but for her experience of her parents was very uh, challenging and difficult, and she saw the dynamic between them of her, her father kind of verbally beating up her mother all the time, and her mother kind of crumbling under that weight, and that sent her a message that became a perception for her of, I don't want to be a woman, and that gave birth to the transgender issues in her life. We saw in the one African-American lady a choice that leads to direct demonic oppression. Once we cross certain lines, once we go over certain lines and we make certain choices, then we are really inviting the enemy to begin to harass us on newer levels. And I thought that was an interesting way of describing that. Notice the needs. The longings of these people. The one gal talks about the need for a nurturing mother, and that's what attracted her to women. Joe Dallas talks, <coughs> excuse me. Joe Dallas talks about that he was hungry for a man to welcome him into masculinity. These were soul, soul longings that were very core and deep to who they are. We saw a similar confusion introduced by this grandmother cross-dressing her young grandson. That might be even considered today to be in a form of abuse. But uh, it was that situation then gave birth to confusion. And the enemy could have been easily acting behind the scenes to cause confusion in that young man through his grandmother. And maybe she just innocently doing this, it created a perception in the child that planted seeds of doubt about his masculinity. And that image he describes of the image of the purple dress coming out at night. I mean, for me personally, that just sounds like a demonic attack through and through of... Animating this dress. And sometimes the enemy is much more overt, and sometimes he's more subtle, and sometimes he sends abusive people into our lives, and sometimes he sends broken people into our lives. But all of this is a cocktail for contributing factors that lead us into any sin, any habitual pattern. Homosexuality is what we're focusing on in this series, but hopefully, you're getting by now the idea. That what brings us into agreement with sin and to act on sin and to engage in those choices is often a cocktail of situations, perceptions, and finally lies. I thought Joe Dallas said it so well at the end there that, that he came into agreement with lies about himself, about God, and that that was also a factor in what gave birth to homosexuality in his life. And we have to be willing to engage when we are dealing with a a secret habitual sin, when we are on that pathway to the road to sin in our lives, an obsession, a passion. We have to be willing to engage on some level on on a journey of insight about ourselves. How did I get here? What was the plan of the enemy, the specially devised plan of the enemy that brought all of these forces together, that contributed to me being vulnerable to making certain sinful choices? And that's not to remove our moral culpability of these choices, because we still decided. And people get sexually abused every day and they don't become homosexual. So we have that choice. We have that free moral agency. But for many people, there are many factors that go into making sinful choices and having the strength in our soul to look and with the guidance of the Holy Spirit to reveal truth about us of how did I arrive in this situation. That's often where freedom begins, real freedom that the Lord can use and just reveal to us sometimes in a moment, here's how I got here. And he can begin to give us a pathway out and off that road to sin. One final question. Is there a gay gene? Are people gay because they are born that way? This is a very common uh, perception in our culture. And I'm not going to give an exhaustive uh, discussion of that here. I'm just going to simply raise a simple question is really the question is, is is there a genetic connection to sin? There is this growing idea that I think is a very naturalistic idea, not a Christian idea. It's from the naturalistic worldview that if I don't believe there's a God, then maybe my genes made me do it. That, that maybe I am not actually morally responsible for my choices. And I've, you know, you can just go on Google and start searching around. Well, is there a genetic connection to alcoholism? Are people predisposed to alcohol abuse? Are people predisposed to being abusive people? Are people predisposed to rape? These are all questions that have been explored and are being explored as to whether or not there's a quote unquote genetic or biochemical connection between these behaviors and our physical component. And I would just say this, that if we're going to reduce our morality down to our genes, then we live in a world of determinism. We live in a world where everything is predetermined, and we are not actually morally responsible for our actions. And we can't put people in prison because they rape people. We can't put people. We can't put people who beat their wives in jail because they might be genetically predisposed to being abusive. We can't put people who commit vehicular manslaughter with cars because they're drunk into jail because their genes made them do it. That's not the world that we're living in, and I don't think it's the world that we want to live in. There's an emerging realm of epigenetics that really shows how much we can actually affect our genes and change ourselves genetically through our behaviors. So even if, even if there is a biochemical, genetic, or physical connection between homosexuality and the behavior, and the, the physical and, and the behavior, I'm not sure that really answers the question because we can change our genes. People who are prone to being obese can change their genetic makeup by taking care of themselves and by exercising and by watching what they eat. They can actually not only change their physical appearance, they can change their genetics. So genetics is not something that's fixed. It's not a determined outcome. It's a potential outcome. And this brings us, quite frankly, right back to my previous point of the importance of meditating, our meditations and our thoughts. And really what this comes down to on so many levels of any sin is it's a spiritual warfare battle. It's a battle for the mind. God is calling you to think his thoughts after him. And the enemy is inviting you to come into agreement with lies about yourself, about God, and about the world around you. It's a battle for the mind. And the question is, is what will you meditate on? What will you entertain in your thoughts? And how will you bring your thoughts into alignment with God's thoughts? With the natural order about your physical body? Or will you continue to meditate on the thoughts that the enemy feeds you of discontent about your physical body and, and your desires and your urges it for more and things that you shouldn't have. It's a mind battle. It's a spiritual warfare battle. And we have to be rock solid in knowing who we are and not coming into agreement with the enemy's deception, either in our culture or for us as individuals and the enemy's individual plan for us to destroy our lives and to destroy our anointing, our calling, and our spiritual gift in the kingdom of God. I want to leave you with some resources today. There's a few things to check out on this whole uh, genetics question. Is there a gay gene? Uh, you can check out a video and a book uh, that will talk about these issues in more detail. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye.